You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, October 6th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, no. I'm happy to, well, yes, I, I mean, I'll, uh, <laughs> if you're done, then I'll, I'll start talking short. <laughs> I, I am done. Please do. All right. Um, well, thanks everyone for joining. I, I was getting a lot of requests, so I figured I'd just do this, um, which is the first one of these I've done in a, a very long time now. We just had a baby a couple of days ago, so I'm a little tired. Um, uh, so the uh, first I want to point everyone to an article that we published the other day in the New York Times, um, myself and, and uh, folks from the COVID Collaborative um, authored it uh, with me. and. Uh, it was essentially laying out uh, an, an idea about how we can scale up uh, rapid testing very, very quickly. Uh, and so the president's uh, announcement and the White House announcement today that we probably most people on the call just heard is around the scaling up of, of, um, of, a, of rapid tests a bit more. Uh, and while this is a, a great step forward, in my opinion, I think that it unfortunately will will still fall short, uh, both in terms of the time frame needed to get these tests uh, into Americans' hands, especially given that this is by definition a public health emergency, um, which has time as a part of that. And we need to be doing everything we can as fast as we can to get these tests in people's hands and homes. Um, uh, but it's also an, an issue of scale. Now, I think that the president's initiative here, both in the COVID-19 action plan that was uh, released a, a couple of weeks ago and the announcement today of the, the billion dollars going towards testing uh, is all, I think, commensurate with what needs to be done with this pandemic. Uh, we need to be able to give people the tools to know if they're infectious. This, this is the exact same story that's been, been told you know, for, for essentially 20 months now. Uh, that COVID doesn't have to be an information problem. Uh, we don't need to have quarantines and shutdowns again. Uh, quarantining somebody because they are uh, potentially exposed to somebody, especially in the school systems, is purely an information problem. It's because we don't know whether or not your child was infected by their peer who was positive. So the fact that we actually have a tool that would enable us to be able to know whether or not you're actually infectious and not just have to um, have this sort of rote quarantine practice uh, is on the one hand, a sign of being an industrialized country. It's a sign of using the tools that are at our disposal. Um, but unfortunately, we still have not made these tools widely available. I think that, um, that, that we can do better. One of the things that we pointed out in the New York Times piece last week is that there's um, the greatest bottleneck in Americans getting access to affordable, high quality rapid tests that to the extent that people just have them in their homes in the same way that we have Band-Aids or Advil. There's no reason not to have rapid tests when they, are, when they continue to just weigh, when this pandemic weighs so heavily on society. Uh, the best way to get them authorized and through into the hands of Americans is to change how they're regulated. Right now, they, they continue to be regulated as medical devices, but that means that we're applying the wrong metrics to them when, when the FDA evaluates them. Uh, the best way to, 
to rapidly scale up, not by December or February or March, the number of tests that we have. And still, even with the president's announcement, it's still going to be woefully insignificant, um, uh, insufficient rather, to, uh, to really be able to curb spread, uh, is to call them public health tests, to, for the president to take presidential action and executive action to do something that's very sensible and simple. And that's to say that any tests used for public health testing during this public health emergency will be designated as public health tools. What that does is it enables a new pathway to be built to get these tests into the hands of Americans. It follows in the footsteps of what the UK and Germany and a number of European countries have done, which it changes how we're evaluating them. We start to evaluate these tests on the right uh, with the right metrics to ask, does it detect infectiousness? Is it specific for people who are infectious so that we're not isolating people who are no longer infectious? Uh, and it also would enable us to not have to have onerous clinical trials and would be able to take the, the best tests from all around the world and say, if a certain country that we trust has already had a lot of experience with a particular test, then we immediately grant them certification to use in the United States. So then we're not waiting until February to actually scale up to 200 million tests. We're actually opening America's doors to a huge number of additional tests almost immediately which would of course help drive down costs. You can go to Germany right now and every person in Germany can buy a box of 50 tests for under $35. That's under a dollar test. And here in the US, we are still charging 10, $15 per test. We still have just this slow trickle of authorizations coming through, which is uh, on the one hand, you know, heartening to see that they're actually able to get through the hurdles, but effectively what's happening is they're just having to, to get authorization. These companies are essentially having to contort their clinical studies to find the right people to join into the studies so that they can even meet the, the FDA's benchmark. Um, instead, we should just be actually evaluating these tests based on their public health utility, getting them out very quickly. The best of the tests can be in every American's hands very, very quickly. And ideally the government should be uh, subsidizing the full cost. I've said many times that Americans should not be on the hook out of their pocket to pay for public health. These tests are public health tools. They're not medical devices. And by, by asking people to pay for them really is, is a, a, a shows a, a lack of understanding about what the actual role of tests like these are. They are public health. They are for the benefit of people's neighbors, not for the test user. And so individuals should not be on the hook for paying for them. The government should be subsidizing, which is what we see in other developed countries. Most of our peer nations are barely charging or, or giving these out for free to individuals. And that's smart public health. In the same way that we're not charging people for vaccines uh, and many times people can get masks for free, we should be doing the same thing with tests. Um, and then we should also really focus on making sure that we're giving companies and schools and businesses and, and all the entities that are going to be putting testing programs in place, in particular in the wake of the president's COVID-19 action plan, which has vaccination or testing as, a, as one of its pillars, uh, then these tests should be verifiable. We should be propping up uh, software platforms and companies that actually enable verified results that get reported to public health so that we can 
we don't have to be making a, a trade-off between a rapid test and public health reporting. We can do both. So I think that there's um, major things, major themes that come out of this. I'm, uh, I'm very happy that the president is pushing forward on rapid tests. I think it's a great step forward. This announcement is a great step forward. Um, I do think that it's still going to be uh, for a country our size. It might sound to the average person that 100 million tests or 200 million tests per month is a lot. But at the end of the day, that's probably not going to come about until the end of this year, early next year. And it still means that it's less than six tests per year uh, per American, even at that rate. Uh, and so we really need to figure out how to massively scale up these tests, drive down costs, and do it in a time frame that's actually commensurate with the, the continued problems that are associated with this pandemic today. Thank you, Dr. Benner. All right, uh, first question. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. And Dr. Minna, congratulations on the baby. Um, wonderful journey you've just embarked on. Um, my, my question is, it, it feels like I've been hearing you say this now for almost two years, as you say, 20 months. Why has it taken us so long to do this? If this is as simple as you describe, we know that this has been a need since the beginning, why do you think it has just been something that we have slowly, slowly come to recognize? I think it's two reasons. On the one hand, we have had a vaccine-only approach, but that's really only been since uh, since this last December. So yes, we, we did need these last year, and we could have had them last summer uh, to avoid the, the fall shutdowns and, and deaths associated with the fall and winter last year. I think the greatest reason um, is unfortunately still the same reason. These tests have been available. They've been available around the world. They just haven't been available until recently. We heard, uh, we heard Jeff Science on the call uh, at three in the White House say that these are a new technology that only came about you know, since the president, since this administration has been in place. But that's not actually true. Uh, it's just in the United States, it's been that case. Um, I think the, the reason is actually the same. It's that the FDA has only authorized these as medical devices and effectively created an, an, an impossible barrier to entry. The only way to get an authorization, an EUA authorization for these rapid tests, uh, which are specific to being to the infectious period, is to skew the clinical trials appropriately, or you know, uh, uh, to skew the, the clinical trials in a, what I would argue may be considered an inappropriate fashion against what the FDA is actually asking for, so that the only participants that are in your trial uh, are currently infectious. And that way you can actually achieve the 80% bar because in reality, you're only positive on a rapid test for about 30% of the time that you're positive on a PCR test. And that's because you're only infectious for about 30% of the time they are otherwise PCR positive. So I would argue that it has all been about the barriers set up at the FDA and the, the unrelenting sort of requirements by the FDA to authorize these only as medical devices against PCR using onerous clinical trials. And in some ways, I don't, I, I actually would argue that maybe this isn't even the FDA's fault. Um, maybe it was never on the FDA to, uh, to take on this role. They very publicly state over and over and over that they do not care or evaluate, uh, care about or evaluate public health tests, and they don't. Uh, and so at some point, somebody had to recognize that this was a bottleneck 
And they had to say, look, these are public health tests designed for different metrics. They're fast, they're inexpensive, they can be done at home frequently, and they are specific to the infectious period of somebody's infection. That's a public health tool. And somebody at some point had to say to the FDA, look, this if you don't have a pathway to evaluate this for its public health merits, uh, then we need to find somebody else who would evaluate it appropriately. And in fact, I would argue that by forcing everything through a medical pathway, we, we've actually effectively eroded the medical uh, sort of the, the, the way that we authorize these medical devices and use prescriptions. We should have much earlier on just said, look, this is a CDC response uh, or a CDC tool. The CDC will be in charge of figuring out how to evaluate it based on public health metrics. And if we do that, we still can. I think that would immediately release the logjam of these tests, but ultimately the FDA has just held them all to an incredibly high standard, but not an appropriate standard. People keep confusing high standard with better. It's actually been a, the standard that they're holding it to is not appropriate for public health. And we don't wanna isolate people, for example, who are not infectious, that's bad public health. And so, it's been a it's been a real problem, and I think that we've asked the FDA to to take on an impossible task of of evaluating a public health tool when they are only charged with evaluating medical devices. Uh, next question is, uh, she has two questions. The first one she says for fun, congrats on being a parent, and has this changed how you think about testing? I'm feeling no. Uh, <laughs> the second one is more serious. Uh, this initiative is once again putting federal dollars into a strategy that appears to not have a timely impact. Where is the best outlet for these tests to be once uh, tests become more readily available for the biggest impact? Would that be pharmacies, testing sites, mail order? What are your thoughts? I think some of the greatest impact, we have to look at what are the entities that are the great, that have the greatest uh, impacts of COVID that are struggling the most as a result of COVID. And certainly I think in the country at the moment, uh, we, have, uh, we have breakthrough cases happening all over the place, um, which is not unexpected in any regard in especially nursing homes. Uh, we have um, schools that continue to shut down and we have vaccinate or test mandates that the president is putting out. So I think, uh, and then we have a lot of different entities like prisons and, and things like that where, where, where spread can happen very quickly. And so I think getting these, focusing on those types of entities, finding where is this virus the most problematic for society? And let's just use schools as one example. I think that schools, we need to be getting, keeping kids in school. We can't keep quarantining kids because Johnny in their class is positive. We don't wanna ask 20 other kids to go home for 10 days. That's that information problem I was discussing. We have these tools to be able to solve that. We wanna give these tools to people to use at home before they go to school and say, instead of quarantining, use your test in the morning. If you're negative, go to school. If you're positive, don't go to school. It's that simple. Um, and we can partner that with verification if needed and all these different things, it all exists. Um, I think, using these tests for what they're worth, they, are, they can be made very inexpensive. They can be distributed um, so that there's, no, uh, that there's no sort of centralized area that's performing them. That's very good for underprivileged communities, for poor communities, for um, communities that are undocumented. 
these people, you know, people in these communities have, are generally unable to afford many of these rapid tests. We need to get the price to essentially free. And we need to give people the tools to be able to deal with their slice of this pandemic on their terms. Uh, and if it does go to the public health agencies for reporting, great. If it doesn't, then at least people are keeping themselves and their neighbors safe. So I think those are some of the, there's a, a whole slew, and I'll actually be giving a keynote, or not a keynote, sorry, a Grand Rounds um, lecture tomorrow for the UCSF Grand Rounds seminar series, um, which maybe many of you have joined over in the past year about this tomorrow. Thank you. Um... And I think this might be our last question because we're at 420 already. Is that okay? Go for five, five more minutes, yeah. Okay. Um, hi, Dr. Mina. Um, so I, let's see where to start. So FDA updated its uh, templates for all its COVID-19 test applications right uh, today, um, but they maintained the 80% specific or sensitivity or specificity, one of the two. Um, for these antigen tests and the outline. Um, I, I wanted to ask slash push back on your, your, your definition of what a public health uh, test would be, or like at least the mechanism through which you imagine the administration to utilize um, to create this pathway. Um, are you advocating for the creation of a new FDA pathway? And if so, does that not require legislative action from Capitol Hill? No, the FDA does not regulate or, or authorize public health tools. So what I'm sure. uh, arguing for is for the CDC to create some sort of certification process that would enable particular tests to be able to be used without an EUA, uh, as long as the CDC, and of course, that might have to be done in collaboration with FDA, for example, to say you can either go through the EUA process, as has been done, or you can go through the CDC public health emergency Do you think that process. the CDC has the expertise to evaluate these types of tests, especially given the challenges developing a test and maintaining sterile labs at the beginning of the pandemic? Absolutely. I think that this is not a difficult thing. Um, uh, the UK has demonstrated how it can be done. We actually demonstrated how it can be done with the COVID-19 rapid test XPRIZE um, last year. Uh, and the, the reality is we don't need this convoluted and onerous clinical trial system to authorize these tests. We need to know which tests are specific. So and we need on, to know on, which tests are sensitive for a given viral load. So last Friday, Illum, which I believe got the first EUA for an at-home test in December of last year. So I think Zent's got that wrong. Zent's got that wrong today. Yeah. Um, had to issue a recall of several of their tests, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, lots of people are complaining on, on Twitter or, you know, to public health yeah. departments that, um, you know, this is a problem. Um, do you think that the characteristics of that type of test, especially if it was flooded into the US market would not create the same reaction? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not following the question. As in like, it does the, if a test is not accurate enough and you have this type of oh. problem, and you have so well, many people I, complaining that they're getting false positives or worse, false negatives, will it not mm -hmm. be detrimental to the pandemic response? Oh, no. Well, I think that if we give, if we treat these tests like the public health tools they are, and we go through a different public health pathway, we would be identifying the right metrics. We wouldn't be, um, for example, the FDA has an oddly extraordinarily low bar in terms of evidence that needs to be put forward 
uh, to get an EUA, but an extremely high bar in terms of how that evidence has to be gathered. So yeah. you end up getting essentially useless information is what's given to the FDA. You know, it takes 30 positives to get an EUA, but yeah. finding the right positives takes months and millions of dollars. And so two last questions. Germany yeah. removed about over 20 tests that they were using rapid tests from their market in the last few weeks. Um, do you have any comment on that since you have been advocating for the German approach? Uh, it sounds like it's working that if they're finding the ones that aren't working, <laughs> I would say. Even though they've been uh, used for months now? Well, I, I, I think that uh, what we should do is, you know, whether we follow the exact German approach or we follow the UK approach, which I think has actually been extremely successful. The UK has done a great job at selecting really very, very highly accurate ones. Yeah, and I so apologize can, for asking so many questions, but this is my last one. Um, yeah. Are you still involved with ANOVA and their efforts to get a COVID-19 test onto the market in the United States? No, and I wasn't really involved with them. I was, uh, I ran the clinical trial with Citibank um, with them and, uh, and that was sponsored by Citi. And I, so, but no, I haven't, I haven't had any interaction with them, but I would say that they continue to have uh, to, to continue to demonstrate that their test is actually quite robust um, in totally third-party uh, independent studies that have come out, you know, in the last couple of months. Did you not, or not your, sponsored by them. Did you or your nonprofit get any reimbursement for that work? Nope, not from ANOVA at all. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, one more question. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Dr. Mina. Uh, congrats on your new baby. Um, my question is, aside from the shortage in testing supply, what role does the availability of testing sites and to actually find and get these COVID-19 tests play in the decline of testing? Like, especially with parents whose kids are in school and need tests, they can't find, you know, available testing appointments within 30 miles of them. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a true travesty of this pandemic in the United States. Um, I think having access to these rapid tests in, in the house and being able to have, you know, frankly, the government should just be, I, I think should really just be producing these tests um, and, and giving them out to people. Um, uh, there should be no place in the United States where somebody has to drive a half hour to get a test, uh, it, which is actually very common in a lot of the United States at this point. Um, a lot of the policymakers are in DC or New York City and things like that. And, um, and so people are a little bit under the impression that getting even a PCR test is fast and simple, um, but not having access to a test during a pandemic like this is, uh, I think, really massively detrimental. Um, and I certainly hope that part of this initiative that the president has put together is, uh, you know, is going to really try to address that head on and say, maybe allocate more tests to the rural areas, for example. Are you all set? Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Minna. Uh, Dr. Minna, do you have anything else you'd like to say before we go? Uh, no, not right now. Okay, and if anybody is looking for the information on the grand rounds, I'll see if I can find that. Uh, just send me an email and I'll see what I can do. Thank you very much, Dr. Minna, and uh, thanks for everybody for participating in today's call, and we'll see you again sometime soon. Bye. Thanks. This concludes the October 6th press conference.